Hello, and you are listening to Between the Gutters. This is Drew, and I'm with my partner Albert. Hi, hello. And you're listening to Between the Gutters. We are a new comics podcast, and our mission statement and goal with our show is to uplift and praise good comics. And to shat on bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for listening, and uh, today... We're going to st- start start off by talking about the top 25 Marvel comics of all time. Um, just before we go on, uh, yeah, just to be clear, uh, we're going to do a series of these, and it's going to we're going to do them in increments of five. So uh, today we're going to do the 25th through the 20th ranked top. Marvel Comics, in our opinion. 21st. 21st, I'm sorry. We're going to do five at a time, five per episode, so as you tune in, uh, you're going to get a good chunk of uh, five comics per week, and uh, what can we tell our listeners about how we arrived at our top 25 ranking? (laughs) It was all very scientific. We, We gathered a team of specialists and high-minded academics into, and we closed them off from society and uh, held them within a bunker for years to contemplate this eternal truth. But really, it was just the two of us (laughs) picking our favorite comics and then finding an arbitrary way to give numbers so that we could put them in order. I, I like the idea of, of uh, getting a team of academics and intellectuals and locking them in a bunker for a year. Yeah. And just forcing them to read every single Marvel comic that's ever been printed. How else would you do it? How else yeah. have the greatest innovations of our time yeah, ever exactly. come, to, come to be, right? Yeah. When people are under the gun, they make the right decision. Exactly. Or but we did do that. Part. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I, I would say it wasn't completely arbitrary. Uh, we we did have... There was some semi-science to it. Yeah, there was a science to it. We had... How we determined the top 25 greatest Marvels of all time. Well, first of all, we're not talking necessarily about single issues here. We're talking about either complete stories, like a mini-series, or a maxi-series, or really an entire run from a creative team. So... There might be a couple times when it might sound like we're cheating because we're just lumping in like a, a big series together as one item, but you know, it, I think that's that's a fair way of looking at it. If if we were doing a series about the top twenty-five greatest single issues, it would be a totally different list. But we're just this is how we're, this is. I'm just telling you guys how we're approaching it. It's it's just the greatest stories or runs, and that's how we're approaching the top twenty-five. And we yeah. have a yeah, we've got. We had four criteria that we focused on, um, going back to the science of, of how Albert and I came up with this list. Or, sorry, not Albert and me, but, you know, the team of academics <laughs> and intellectuals that we locked in a bunker. They weren't able to see their families. They weren't able to build relationships. Uh, we fed them on a minimum of a high-protein bar that was very, where we selected specific nutrients. <laughs> So, here here are the criteria that we came up with in order to determine uh, 
in order to calculate yeah. uh, how we could determine which comics were ranked the way that they were ranked. Yeah. So we started off, first of all, with just a bunch, a big list of a bunch of comics that we thought were worthy of inclusion. You know, like if it was obvious that that comic was not going to make this list, we wouldn't have talked about it. You know, something like a T-Mac Spider-Man from the 90s. Like, <laughs> there's no way that would have cracked the list. But we had a list of of an initial list that was pretty big, and we whittled it down. Uh, we we made a spreadsheet, and basically each of us graded all the comics on a scale of 1 through 10, with the more points being better, uh, on four criteria. So here's the four criteria. First of all was craft. So craft was basically, is the, te- is the comic t- technically well-conceived is it well written is it well illustrated how strong is the overall storytelling did the creators demonstrate mastery over the language and the form of comics all of the elements that you would automatically think of uh when thinking of uh the production of a comic book story basically the you know the pictures the words uh the narrative stylistic things i guess mm-hmm. yeah the nuts and bolts of it yeah exactly exactly good way to put it second was originality so by that we're just talking about is the comic creative and imaginative does it have something new or meaningful to say uh yeah i mean uh yeah that basically sums it up i don't even know why i kind of tried to say anything. okay keep going <laughs> the, the third item is Impact. So with Impact, we're talking about what sort of lasting influence did the comic have? Did it leave a mark within the Marvel Universe? Did it leave a mark on the comics industry? Did it leave a mark on pop culture in general? Do fans remember the story or the run with great affection? Exactly. That's what we're talking about when we looked at Impact. And finally, our final criteria is, does it withstand the test of time? So I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Is it is the comic something that holds up today outside of the context of its original publication date? Is it something that we could read over and over again today? Is it something that you could see yourself going back to again and again in the future? You know, with, does it withstand the test of time? Basically, how how much more would you want to read it? Exactly, reading it ten years down the road. Are you, is there going to be a point where you're going to stop and question yourself and say, "Why did I like this?" <laughs> I mean, if if that, yeah, I mean, if the if we you don't have an obvious answer for that, and you walk away questioning yourself, then it probably didn't withstand the test of time, and you're probably an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing everybody who listens to our show is not an idiot, or they'd no, be offended. Exactly, because exactly. we're going to be bashing on some of the comics that we used to like when we were kids, like Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man Number One. <laughs> uh. All right, shall we move on? Yeah, let's uh, jump into our list. So, coming in at number 25, what do we have, Albert? Okay, so, the first, the at number 25, the comic that we have chosen ha- is Avengers by Jonathan Hickman. This is a pretty recent run, and... Uh, it's one that we both have a lot of affection for. Um, mm-hmm. Like, um, how do you want to... 
go about this? Yeah, so we've got Avengers and New Avengers. Uh, maybe this is an instance where it, you could look at us and be like, what, how can you list two comics, two runs as one item? Isn't that a cop-out? But I would say this is really one big run because even when you read the Jonathan Hickman's Avengers and New Avengers from, you know, it started in 2013... Both of these series take place concurrently, and at some point they intertwine. You know, you got to kind of read back and forth. There's the Infinity crossover, time runs out. Yeah. Um, so it, it's really one extended storyline that Jonathan Hickman wrote with the help of you know a small army of really talented artists. Yeah. So if we're gonna break this down, let's let's break it down first of all by observing the craft of the comic. Yeah. Um. Jonathan Hickman is a pretty impressive writer in the sense that um, he's really complex. I like I, I think though he's really intricate. I guess is a more appropriate way to put it. I mean, in terms of his storytelling, as as well as in terms of um, I feel like I think he has like some sort of background in like graphic design or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like he he has a really interesting way of presenting his comics both in terms of the narrative as well as the visuals of it. I mean, even if he's not the artist of the book, he it's sort of clear that he has a vision for how he wants to package his stories. Mm-hmm, so, yeah, it's 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 a pretty well-produced story cuz essentially he's Avengers Avengers and New Avengers are essentially two teams of Avengers that are existing at the same time period, and they're both facing a story, their own independent stories. But the intricacy, the the intricacy of it comes in his ability to intertwine those two stories, and you can read them individually. But if you read them both as a whole, it all works out as well. Yeah, and one of the things that I wanted to touch on when we're talking about his Avengers, first of all. Uh, just Avengers, not not new Avengers, but the first three issues of his series. Um, this is what really sets his Avengers apart, because his his Aven- Avengers came about after we had probably almost ten years of uh, Brian Michael Bendis writing Avengers, and and his Bendis's Avengers was a different animal from what people traditionally thought of as Avengers. Um, especially in, in the beginning of Bendis's run, you know he was bringing in characters like Spider-Man and Wolverine and and uh, his man crush Luke Cage. It was a pretty popular team of Avengers, kind of. If you could imagine Bendis taking, like the most popular characters in the Marvel universe and putting them on one team. Yeah. You know that that was it. Yeah, in a way, it was like his answer to JLA. You know, when Grant Morrison took over JLA, he put on. The big, all the big guns returned to the JLA, and that's sort of what Bendis did. Uh, and when when Hickman took over, I mean, obviously, if if you've read any of it, you know, Spider-Man and, and Wolverine are still on this team of Avengers as well. But I would say his approach was making it more like Morrison's JLA in the sense of how grand it all was. When you look at Bendis's Avengers, a lot of it still felt like um, they they were dealing with a lot of street level crime. I mean, yeah, they they f- fought like powerful magical creatures too magical characters like the hood and whatnot yeah but at, at the end of the day it was a lot of like street level stuff where where they weren't always fighting threats that 
you know, encompassed the entire world or or universe. They had occasions where the stakes felt really high, but overall, a lot of their stories felt like, yeah, they were fighting, you know, organizations or mm-hmm. like crime lords or you know, there was a series, there was a run in the series where they were taking on uh, uh, a ninja organization. Yeah, you know, so yeah. it's it's it's. I'm not saying that that's bad or anything, but it's it's, it's different. It's a different power scale yeah. when you're having the Earth's mightiest heroes, and I emphasize that the Avengers are the Earth's mightiest heroes. And what are they fighting? Ninjas, you know? Right. But like realistically speaking, if you took the Justice League and like had Superman, Wonder Woman, <laughs> uh, the Flash, and Green Air- Green Lantern, and like any one of them by themselves would be able to just decimate a group of ninjas, <laughs> like. You know, all that chop suey stuff don't do nothing to a power ring. You know? <laughs> that is very true. That I cannot disagree with that. No, sir. I'm Asian, by the way. I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> chop suey. Because <laughs> that's what ninjas do. But going back to uh, Hickman's Avengers, what I really liked and appreciated about his run, um, he took the Avengers as a concept, right? And... And he made them grand again. He made them grand. Yeah, exactly. And he didn't just make them grand, but if you if you start off reading from issue one, he starts off with this sort of mythical sort of opening. It's like the style of, of the writing, you know. It, it, it's it's creation. It's like a creation story. It's, he starts off just on the first page. He starts off with these lines: "There was nothing," followed by everything. Swirling, burning specks of creation that circled life-giving suns. And then we raced to the light. You know, I mean, language like that, um, just to kind of set the tone of, of what he's going for, he, he starts off with this mythic language. And, it's and powerful, it's, man. It is powerful. And they, the Avengers fight off a, a new uh, planet, planet-scale threat, end up winning, right? And as, as you continue to read through the series... He, they're, they move on from being merely mythic to actually being legendary. Yeah. Legendary. Yeah. And, like, on top of that, uh, the thing that is really cool about what Hickman did was, again, like, I, we, I have to go back to Morrison's Justice League, but you gotta remember, at this point, up to this point, Bendis's Avengers was a compilation of marvel's most popular characters whereas hickman kind of took it back to its roots in the sense that he he brought the core avengers team together and they hadn't been together in a long while and it wasn't just you know captain america and iron man he brought he found a way to and thor he found a way to bring the hulk back too mm-hmm. like which was like the original avengers yeah. the the epic avengers that we think of yep. at, in the very early days of the avengers so you know this was definitely Hickman go like kind of writing a love letter and taking the opportunity like if if you can say that Hickman had one chance to write the Avengers, what he did was he said, "Okay, I'm going to take the Avengers that, you know, everyone knows and loves and I'm going to give them the story that they deserve." Yeah. Yeah. Everybody gets a chance to shine and he even throws in a bunch of new characters. New characters like yeah. really powerful superhero and superheroes. Yeah. And makes the just the addition to the team of like you know Captain Marvel and 
Captain Universe and Hyperion. Yep. You know, it, it definitely ups the, the scale of this team, and, and it's necessary for the kind of threats that they end up facing. Yeah. And when you look at his run on New Avengers, that, too, is... It was, uh, it was different, right? I mean, it's about the Illuminati. You know, he called, it's called New Avengers, but it's, it's really, you know, starts with Iron Man and, and Black Panther, Namor, Mr. Fantastic, Black Bolt, and Hank McCoy, uh, the Beast, and Doctor Strange. And they're dealing with a crazy threat, too, the, the incursions, which would end up becoming a really big thing in his overall storyline. It's basically alternate realities all uh, clashing with one another to the point where they're wiping each other out. So if you can think of uh, alternate realities as a string of pearls, they're basically just smashing into one another. And this is a universe, uh, universal threat, basically. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a multiversal threat. I mean, universes, multi multiverses are crashing into each other and and universes are dying basically the idea is that an alternate earth appears in the same space as another earth and if they collide you know that pretty much destroys both universes so the new avengers realize this threat is real and basically have to decide are we willing to destroy another universe in order to preserve our own and forces them to deal with this, you know... Questionable decision, Yeah, basically. It's, it's a moral conundrum that you can only face in comic books, you know? Like, it's it's not a normal kind of threat. Yeah. Well, I mean, the th- so, again, this goes back to the topic of craft that we were discussing or, or that we mentioned earlier. So, uh, in writing these two comics uh, simultaneously at the same, uh, at the same time... Um, he almost makes him a mirror of one another. Yeah. Because you have his Avengers, and then you have his new Avengers, and the Avengers team is very much, you know, a pantheon of heroes. You look to them, and they're, like, gods, and they're, you know, there's no, like, moral ambiguity. They're just mm-hmm. good guys, yep. you know, and they, they're here to inspire you. Mm-hmm. Whereas the the new Avengers that he was writing at the same time was a story about this this cabal or illuminati of heroes that are working in secret behind closed doors to make decisions that will save the world and they do things that are unsavory and and it's the craft of it is excellent because he finds a way to constantly build the escalation so that it the story doesn't immediately start out with them going oh uh, we we have to wipe out all these people or do this and that. Uh, like there's there's a slow burn that builds up so that when you finally get to the point in the story where they really have to do something distasteful, like the drama of it has just been heightened so much, and it's it's I, I don't really have a word for how to, how to describe like the the tension that you feel when you get to that point but it's it's pretty powerful you know yeah he takes you to a place that's really intense emotionally i mean and and not only that not only in terms of the stakes but in terms of the interplay between the characters i mean you got characters like black panther and and namor who who don't even like each other but they're forced to work together and basically you know keep this a secret from 
all the other superheroes they know. I mean, the new Avengers, the Illuminati, they're the only ones who really know about this threat. They're not telling other people about it because it's it's too massive. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we, I feel like we we got to talk about the art too, man. Like some yeah. of the art, the different artists on who who worked on his run, just really ta- talented. I mean, Jerome Pena drew the first three issues of Avengers. And uh, that was a story called Avengers World, and I still think it's one of the absolute finest superhero comics you can ever read. Just those three—if we were to just take those three issues alone—but the fact that it's the part of a the opening of a of a much bigger run, you know, it's very satisfying. Opinion's art is just grand. His his line work is 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 so <laughs> it's so nice. Like everybody looks the way they're supposed to look. He he's able to capture. Uh, like the perfect moment of each scene, right? Like it's not just like a, people posing, but it's actual like body language, like where where you have the most amount of impact on on the page. And as you as you read it, you're just wow. That's that really looks like the Hulk, you know, punching that guy and really messing him up. Like yeah. there's just so much force and weight yeah. behind the figure. And you. You had Steve Epting on New Avengers. He's always a really good artist. He draws in that... I call it superheroic realism. And and uh, really matched the gravitas of the situation. The, a lot of dialogue and not yeah. too much action, but a lot of like heavy stuff. Yeah. Cosmic stuff. He's able stuff. to capture the uh, basically the emotional drama of conversation, yeah. more or less. Yeah. Like... Very difficult yeah. thing to do, man. Like, I wouldn't say, like, I'm not going to say that uh, New Avengers doesn't have action. It does, but uh, a lot of the drama comes from talking heads, essentially. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, if you can think of something like The West Wing or something or uh, House of Cards where there's maybe, there's a lot of buildup because there's a lot of tension between characters like Steve Epting just captures that perfectly, you know, just in facial mm-hmm. expressions, in like uh, tone and uh, posture. Posture, exactly. Yeah, and uh, yeah, like we said, there were a whole bunch of other artists um, who worked on both of these series, and and uh, as it progressed, they both both of these comics intertwined to tell one grand story, and you know, eventually uh, concluded in Secret Wars, uh, which was Marvel's big uh line-wide event that kind of revamped their entire universe yeah um i mean it was if if you look at uh, hickman's entire run on those two books it pretty much was his opportunity to tell a in an entire story a almost a self-contained story within his own uh universe i guess or yeah. mini universe yeah you I know? mean, really, if, if you wanted to, you could gather up every single Jonathan Hickman comic that he wrote for Marvel Comics. And, I mean, there's a reading order out there online. You could look it up and you could read his entire Marvel work. And it'll tell one grand tapestry of a story. Uh, but I felt like including all of Jonathan Hickman's work yeah, at number... Yeah. You know, that would obviously be a cheat. Like, yeah. this, this As, is more yeah. fair. And, you know, uh, to be fair, like... The Avengers was the the high point of all that stuff, you know. I mean, that isn't to say that the rest of it wasn't good, but uh, 
Yeah, but if you like Avengers, if you like Hickman's Avengers, New Avengers, you should definitely check out all, all of his other work. His Fantastic Four, FF, yeah. Secret Warriors, Shield, his Ultimates. He did a run on Ultimate Comics that was really good as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we definitely recommend reading it. Uh, this is probably one of the more recent comics on our whole list. You know, it's from 2013. It concluded. Yeah. In, what, like 2015? Was that when Secret Wars came out? Or was that 2016? I forget. Yeah. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a recent run, but yeah. I believe that this is a run that's going to stand the test of time. Exactly. So the thing about... So the reason that we ranked it 25 is... So in terms of the positives, the way we looked at it was... The craft of it was really good. And as... As far as we can tell right now, its ability to withstand the test of time, although very recent, it's it's hard to say. Like from from where we're sitting right now, it looks like it's it's gonna be a story that's gonna be in the top Avengers stories mm-hmm. for all time. So like yeah. we believe uh, that it will withstand the test of time. But the reason that we would say that it's twenty fifth on our list is. We, the two other criteria that we had, which was originality and impact, um, I don't think we ranked them quite as high. Uh, in yeah. terms of originality, like at the end of the day, it's it is still a superhero story. I mean, like he, I'm not saying that he reinvents the wheel or anything, but he essentially does the best version of a superhero story that he can do, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you know? there's nothing wrong with that. With that not at all. Um, in terms of uh, impact, I, I think that's one where the fact that it's such a recent comic, it affects kind of our ability to judge what that impact is going to be in the yeah. long term. You know, so yeah. it's it wouldn't be fair to say that its impact is great because we don't have that kind of hindsight. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Awesome. So right. that is number, number 25, twenty-five on our list. Yep. Avengers and New Avengers by Jonathan Hickman. Yep. Next on our list, we have... Oh, I'm sorry. Well, what's that? We've got Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. This was a comic by Steve Gerber. 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 So to those of you who take offense, too bad. We're going with Gerber. (laughs) We had a long discussion about this, and we weren't sure... And uh, I, I, I just pulled the trigger on Gerber, so sorry. Um, when was this made, Drew? First issue came out in 1976. So it's been around since before either of us were born. It had its heyday before we were born. But it's, uh, it's well-deserved to be on our list. I mean, look, when we're talking about the top 25 comics that Marvel's ever done, that Marvel's ever published... You know, think of all the comics that they've ever published. You know, just to make our list, it's a, it's it's no disrespect coming in at number twenty-four compared to number two or whatever. But this is this is a really good comic that I think people should give a chance. I mean, it, it's obviously older. Um, it's Howard the Duck. I, I think at one point he might have been more well known than than he is uh, although he is sort of making a comeback in the public consciousness having those cameos in yeah. guardians of the galaxy yeah he's voiced by seth green oh yeah that guy we got good. love for that guy we got love for him oh <laughs> uh, yeah i mean i don't 
I'll admit right now that I I, have, I personally haven't actually uh, read it, but even as some even as a person who uh, reads comics, like I I'm aware of Howard the Duck, mm-hmm. and he he has an impact in the Marvel universe, and you know maybe maybe it's considered a cult classic, but uh, that impact is well known. Yeah, you know. Um, Come on, for for goodness sakes, he had a movie. He had a movie you in know? the 80s. Yeah. Maybe that movie didn't get a lot of love, but... George like, Lucas made it. Yeah, that says something. Yeah. You know, that, like, it, it says something about its presence. Yeah. That it, it was important enough or well-known enough that they decided that they wanted to make a movie about it. Yeah. It was... I mean... It was what like a month ago we were at a comic book store and and uh, Albert and I walked in and they had a TV on and that TV was playing the movie Howard the Duck the movie yep and and we just kind of stood there and, and watched it for like five or ten minutes the first few minutes of the movie I mean yeah is it a classic of cinematic storytelling <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I think it'd be a stretch to say that yeah most people hate it yeah but. I'm gonna tell you that I do have some fondness for it. Like I know, I know it's not recognized as a good movie, but it's a movie that I can enjoy for being funny. You know, it, it makes me laugh. Like maybe it's it's unintentional comedy. Maybe I'm laughing at parts that the direct filmmakers didn't intend to be funny. But but uh, you know, it it's enjoyable in its in its own way. It's got its quirks, and the comic Howard the Duck. Uh, it was. If you guys aren't too familiar with Howard, a brief summary of, of what Howard is about. Howard is an anthropomorphic duck from another dimension. He basically looks like Donald Duck, except he's got clothes, or he's got pants and different clothes. <laughs> <laughs> totally different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but uh, he looks like Donald Duck, and he, he ends up in our world, or more specifically, he ends up in the Marvel Universe. So he's trapped in a world that he never made and that's sort of his tagline Howard the Duck's tagline and the whole story is well his his comic was basically very satirical and sort of an existential comedy in a way where the joke was I guess the ultimate joke was that there is no joke but as you're reading it like all the momentary adventures and and uh, things that he encounters, uh, whether it's ridiculous villains like Doctor Bong or whatever, you know, it it's it says something about the time period. Um, maybe it's not something like I said. Neither neither Albert or, or I lived through it. Uh, we were way too young. But having read this, uh, you know, more recently, yeah, there's things that I don't necessarily understand, or maybe they're over my head, but. I can appreciate it uh, how how Gerber and, and Gene Colan, the primary artist, you know, he's a really good artist. The craft of it is exceptional. I mean, I, first time I read it, we've got we've got the comic uh, right here in front of us right now. Actually, uh, I, I bought the omnibus, found it for thirty bucks. It was a deal. But the first time I actually read this comic was I found the essential Howard the Duck, which collected most of the series in, in black and white, and just from that that black and white art it was just gorgeous you know gene colin he he was one of the greatest artists uh not only of his time but of all time you know I, again he, he's a guy whose heyday was before we were born but 
hey, we recognize how good this artwork is. You know, you can even look at look at it in black and white. And in some ways, I kind of even like the black and white more than how it looks in color. He's just a really good. He was a really good artist. The storytelling was just clever. I mean, there was that one issue I was showing Albert uh, before we sat down to record this thing, where it was very unusual, kind of the famous issue of Howard the Duck, where Steve Gerber apparently, I guess he missed uh, a deadline for his script. Yeah. <clears throat> and he ended up turning in this this essay that just kind of talked about, uh, I guess it talked a little bit about why he missed this, missed his deadline and just a whole bunch of other uh, random topics. And it was just an entire essay in the comic book and each page just had a random drawing yeah. that Gene Colan did. It was a weird thing. I'm not even sure if that counts as a comic, but, <laughs> you know, but it, it was well done and, and it was a ballsy thing to do and it was it was forward looking, you know. I mean, I'm sure if every issue were like that, it would it would be weird and, and maybe wouldn't be looked on as so as, as fondly, but... People that might not even be able to enjoy it or yeah, fully appreciate it. But as one issue, I think that was issue 15 or 16 of, of his 20-something issue run, you know, that was... That was a standout moment, you know. There, yeah. We hadn't really seen anything like that before. We still don't really see anything like that. Yeah. Um, my understanding of Howard the Duck is a lot of it is kind of commentary on mm-hmm. kind of the business of publishing. Yeah. As or or culture, popular culture as well. Just yeah. Like what's what's big at the moment, and um, well, before I uh, continue with that thought, uh. So, again, I admit that I haven't read it, but uh, Drew did show me that one issue, uh, and I, I did flip through it and uh, read bits and pieces. And I, I will say that <clears throat> it's a pretty interesting thing to do to miss a deadline and then to <clears throat> to decide to fill the issue as an essay where... You basically make a commentary about, you know, what what was the commentary of that issue exactly? Well, from what I remember, he was he he discussed a little bit about why uh, he missed the deadline and and uh, ended up just writing. It, it was almost like prose poetry in a way. Yeah. It, was, it was it was like I don't really think there was any set. Uh, you know, persuasive argument or anything that he was trying to trying to force across. Yeah. But it was just a lot of musings about like where his head was at and and what was going on at the time. Um, I think he was in the middle of a. I want to say he was in the middle of a of a move, uh, and that's why he was late with the script. But uh, don't quote me on that. Yeah. Even though we're recording this. The thing that I had mentioned to Drew earlier was that. Um the thing that I, I think that is interesting is that a lot of people usually assume that uh, when you're provided the freedom of expression uh, to, to write whatever you want or to say whatever you want or to draw whatever you want, that it produces the most or the best uh, works of art. But I think this this comic is an instance or exa- or an example of a moment where the limitation that's imposed on you actually is the thing that creates the creates a really interesting piece of art mm-hmm. so i was mentioning uh that it's kind of like 
propaganda uh, artist in communist countries back in the day, like in China. Like if you look at a lot of those artists, like they had the state essentially telling them that there were things that they couldn't write or things they couldn't draw. And even if they weren't happy with the state, they found ways to, in a, in tongue-in-cheek ways, to push the boundaries and limits of their expression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, it, it, it's an example where the limitation or where an imposed limitation actually gives you, makes you more creative to yeah. some degree. So I, I do think that that's pretty uh, interesting. Um, uh, in terms of originality i i would say that this comic uh at the time i I don't know like it's hard for me to say what its uh contemporaries really were but like i'm pretty sure at the time a lot of the fair and the comics uh at that were coming out were just kind of standard superhero comics yeah um this was what the 70s you said yeah so like this was the bronze age of comics i think Mm -hmm. and i think the big thing that was happening at the time was a lot of it was the kind of the early budding of social commentary in comics so you had things like you know uh green lantern having to deal with uh you know (laughs) racial injustice hard traveling heroes run yeah and uh like it, it was kind of a very... It, it was the early musings of uh, social commentary before, you know, you would get to later periods where they would flush out those ideas in greater, uh, in greater detail and mm-hmm. uh, expressed in a more uh, well-thought-out way. So I, I do think that the thing about Howard the Duck is I think it's a more overt... Um, work in terms of social commentary relative to those other comics at the time. Right, and and like what you're saying and about how it's so it's got a, an original voice, right? Like I, I feel that Howard the Duck sort of exemplifies uh, almost this the it's it's subversive in that it's like an underground comic, but it's. It was a Marvel comic, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. The '70s was the time when a lot of underground comics were starting to were starting to come onto the scene. Yeah, and and Howard the Duck, it's it's just so different from all the other superhero comics that Marvel and DC have been pushing. Yeah, it it just stands out as as a very subversive voice. Uh, very, I think different. Indie com- yeah, comic like an is indie a comic. really good way yeah. to put it. Like, uh, I want to say, like, if you look at the time period was very counterculture and mm-hmm. you had like i think comics in this time in terms of indie comics was it was like you had guys like crumb coming out right yeah yeah like i mean just looking at this like looking through the art and like peering through like the bits and pieces like it's bizarre and it's like but not in a bad way it's creative yeah and it's you know oddly sexual and it's <laughs> like it, it, but but compare that to green lantern or you know superman fighting muhammad ali or something like that like you know so like um i would say that we we both put a lot of uh points in on uh for on originality for howard the duck yeah so like we we held the craft in high regard and we we think that the originality was pretty high um in terms of the impact, like, 
I felt that it had a greater impact than what yeah. most people would say because it did have a movie. This was yeah. the '80s, you know. Yeah. Was there was there a, another Marvel big budget Marvel Hollywood movie that yeah. came out before this? I, I mean, that's I can't, true. I can't think of one. That's true. Like in terms of, you gotta remember before all the Spider Mans and the X Mens, like. Did, did Howard the Duck even come out before Batman? I'm pretty sure. No? It, it came out before that Michael Keaton Batman. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, this was in a period of time where we weren't getting comic book movies at all. So, to see it, you know, on the big screen like that, like, that that says something. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, it, it penetrated the consciousness at some point. And, I mean, just the fact that he got a movie at some point, I'm pretty sure people, you know... People in the 80s who, who just watched a lot of TV or movies, they were aware of Howard the Duck. Maybe they didn't necessarily know he was a comic book character, but yeah. but they hey, they knew he existed. And that's more than we can say for yeah. a lot of other characters. And I, would, I, I don't think that I would actually take impact and just limit it to like its effect on pop culture. Like If we look at how it impacted comics yeah. and like... You know, that's a good point. People that wrote comics, even today, like I'm sure that a lot of people who grew up in that time period, who are adults now or who are working in the industry now, they're aware of it, and like it left an impact on them. Yeah, it was it left an impression on yeah, them. Yeah, and I think a lot of creators do look at Howard the Duck by uh, Gerber and Colin as pretty important piece in in forming their influences. Um, you know, they people always cite Gerber as uh, you know one of the great writers of his of his era. You know, yeah. com- his he was one of the better guys and more fondly remembered writers uh, compared to his contemporaries. And and I still think that his work holds up. I mean, if you when you read Howard the Duck now, there might be some parts where you're like, oh, this is kind of wordy, or you know, you can tell that it wasn't written in the modern day. But I don't think that should detract from your ability to, you know, understand and appreciate what he did cuz he is a good writer and and he wrote um not only Howard but other comics like uh The Man Thing and and Omega the Unknown um that influenced a lot of other writers who worked in comics. I mean even when he was towards the end of his life, he was still turning out good stuff, you know, like yeah. a lot of the, a lot of the older guys who were writing comics before you and I were born, they ended up like we weren't really necessarily too into them. Yeah. Especially when by the time we were reading, you know, they they'd kind of fallen off the map or maybe they were it just felt like it was too old for us. But with Steve Gerber, I mean, we were in college and he was still writing comics like Hard Time. Yeah. You know, that DC comics published it. It's not as well known, but man, that is a really good comic too. Like this is a this is a gr- he was a great writer, man. Yeah. He he had a good ear for for capturing the voice of people. Yeah. You know, like, have you ever tried listening to older writers try to write like young people? <laughs> like, it's ridiculous, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about Chris Claremont today. No, no. Well, you know, any chance to shat on him, I shall. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of... Yeah, so, and, and uh, by our last metric, in terms of its ability to withstand the test of time, um, I think we dinged it a little bit on that. I mean, we still, it sounds like there's still a lot of affection for the book, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, maybe it's not 
as and and my my reasoning is is not that I don't think it's worthy of standing the test of time. It's more just I have a feeling that the average reader in general is probably gonna find it a little bit dated. Um, I mean, even for me, uh, there like I said earlier, there are things that I didn't really necessarily get or some jokes that might have gone over my head because it was it is sort of a product of its time, but. I think for you know the average person out there, you know they're they're gonna they, a lot of people don't want to read something that they're not gonna really understand yeah. in its entirety. Yeah, I mean, like if look if we found a guy and like just kind of presented him and he had like no context for comics whatsoever and kind of presented w- with this to him, um, it might be a little hard to engage just because. Again, it might just be a little dated for them. Yeah. So, like, but that's that's that doesn't necessarily mean that Howard the Duck doesn't have an impact. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So Howard the Duck coming in at number twenty-four. Next on our list, at number twenty-three, we have. Punisher. The Punisher by Garth Ennis. Punisher Max, actually. Uh, Garth Ennis wrote two Punisher series. Uh, he originally wrote Welcome Back, Frank. In, uh, you wouldn't have to know. I, I think that was the early 2000s, or it might have been like the late, maybe 99 or something. Yeah. When, the Marvel Knights era, when Marvel launched that, he uh, he did a, not only Welcome Back, Frank, which was a 12-issue maxi series, but he also wrote an ongoing series in, under the Marvel Knights banner. And the whole Marvel Knights run is pretty enjoyable. It's entertaining. If if you like some of his other comics, like like Hitman, you know, it's kind of along the same lines. Um, just sort of this black comedy where it's about the Punisher wasting fools and, and, and Garth Ennis having fun just taking the piss out of superheroes. Yeah. He's basically just finding a way to kill people in an entertaining way. So yeah. that you can look it's it's almost like a really grim and dark version of like a Looney Tunes cartoon, you know? Like <laughs> yeah. if you can imagine dropping an anvil on someone and <laughs> deriving some sort of humor from that. Yeah. Imagine that except, you know, with a lot more blood and gore. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the Max series that the Punisher did, or that uh, Garth Ennis did, actually, uh, Ennis takes it to the next level. Yeah. I mean, he, he gives substance to the Punisher yeah, as a character. Yeah, this is serious stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we, we felt that we wanted to place the this specific series, or this specific run that he did on the Punisher, uh, the, the Max series... As number 23. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to start off by talking about the craft of it. Can you give us a little something in terms of how you perceive the craft, Drew? Yeah. I mean, Garth Ennis being the primary creative force behind the series. And I think when we look at the series, we, we have to start with him. Uh, because he did work with a good number of different artists on various story arcs. Uh, I think... His most frequent collaborator might have been uh, Garan Parlov uh, towards the, the middle, uh, the middle of his run towards and t- to the end. But Garth Ennis's writing for the Punisher character, uh, this is Frank Castle we're talking about, and 
And he's up to this point, he'd primarily been known as just, you know, the guy with guns and he's got the skull on his chest and he killed bad guys, right? Uh, but what, what I think sets this run of Punisher apart from the previous iterations was, number one, it's a lot more serious. I mean, obviously being a Max book, which was Marvel's... Uh, mature, adult line. Yeah, their adult line, their mature reader's line. So, you know, they could have bad words and show nudity and, and more graphic violence and stuff. It's basically like a rated R movie. Um, first of all, that alone kind of sets it apart. Because if you look at back in the 90s, like The Punisher was pretty popular back then. But yeah. the sort of stories that people were telling were kind of over the top, almost like... Almost like '80s action movies, right? Yeah, you had, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, actually. like you yeah. had you had the, the storyline where in the '90s uh, the Punisher was afraid of water. <laughs> you know, he he had a deathly phobia of water. Yeah, and, and they were go ahead. Yeah, and and it, it, there was that one famous cover where he's riding on a jet ski, firing a, a gun, and yeah. the caption's like, "You just rented the Punisher a jet ski." kiss that baby goodbye you know it's like stuff <laughs> yeah. like that where it's, it's obviously tongue-in-cheek and yeah. and i guess it was trying to be funny um that was, that was the kind of stuff that the punisher was all about back in the 90s like the other thing that i want to mention about that old punisher is um that punisher was one that they were trying to to place uh in like the regular Marvel universe, so mm-hmm. like that that era, the Punisher. They, I do feel he was least, crossing over with everybody. He, he was, was crossing so, over with yeah. everybody. He had he had three of his own ongoing series in the nineties. Yeah, he was he had a lot of exposures exposure, but I, I I do feel like a lot of the times the way that people wrote him, they they tried to write him almost as a redeemable character or redeem. They, they yeah. tried to give him a lot of redeeming qualities to make yeah. up for the fact that he's slaughtering people yeah. <laughs> you know like yeah they constant like so he would team up with guys like the dare uh, daredevil or spider-man you know for yeah. all intents and purposes you know noble heroes yeah and like they would kind of find ways they they bend over backwards to find ways to have he's got him. rubber bullets he's got bullets <laughs> Rubber bullets, or he's gonna go with tasers on this yeah. one, and it, it just—it's—it's it's hard to tell a story where you've got these two conflicting ideas, where this guy is a mass murderer, yeah, and, essentially a mass murderer. But on occasion, like when uh, he goes up against another conflicting ideology, well, for now, just because we're we're making an alliance. I guess I'll go easy on these guys. And it just, <laughs> you know, it, like what's the one thing that I remember was Round Robin. This oh, yes. One, Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. It was this team up where it was like a bunch of street level heroes teaming up to take on this secret empire. I think that was a Spidey, Spidey Moon, Moon Knight, Knight, Night Thrasher, Na- yeah, Nova, yeah, and New Punisher. Warriors. And uh, there might have been some more, but those are the ones that I can remember. And there was this one scene in particular where he's... Punisher, a guy with machine guns, is taking on, uh, like, an armored goon. This guy has, like, uh, you know, a super suit. Basically, a poor man's Iron Man. And uh, something happens, and the guy gets frozen in his suit. And Punisher walks up, and he's got a knife. And he says, he, he actually says something to the effect of, you, you've got armor on, but since you're frozen, you can't move. I could very easily take this knife and, like, jam it in your eye. And then, like... But then in the last second, 
he flips the knife around and takes the butt of the knife and he hits the guy's armor and the armor shatters and then the guy is just standing there naked and Punisher <laughs> knocks him out. Which is, you know, it's sort of antithetical to the idea of what the Punisher is about. <laughs> yeah, so that Punisher does not exist in Garth Ennis's Punisher Max. Not at all. In fact, one of the things that Ennis does with the Punisher is he... He divorces the Punisher from the context of the wider Marvel Universe. He, he basically operates in, for all intents and purposes, the real world. Um, I think the only real concession we get to the Marvel Universe that, we, that we're familiar with is Nick Fury makes an appearance here and there. But, but even then, he's yeah. just played as a government spook. Right. So, it, so it's, it's basically just a story about Frank Castle operating in the real world. He... He's remember this comic came out uh, in I think it first came out in 2004, and Garth Ennis keeps the original Punisher origin. So he's an actual Vietnam vet. So he's 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 in his 50s at in this story. He's he's a, a grizzled combat veteran, and if there's one thing that you know about Garth Ennis is that I would say all of Garth Ennis's greatest comics that he's ever written are his war comics. And how he writes the Punisher is he writes the Punisher as a war comic in the sense that Frank Castle is fighting a never-ending war against people he hates. You know, I can't even really bring myself to say bad guys. (laughs) I mean, yeah, they're bad guys, but... But that just kind of, like, trivializes them. Exactly. He hates criminals. Like, a bad guy is, you know... A guy with a mustache who twirls it and yeah. puts a, ties a girl up and puts her on a train track or something. Yeah. Like, he just hates evil. Yeah. And he's not afraid to go to extreme methods to, to wipe him out. And how how Garth Ennis writes Frank Castle over the course of the series, about it was about, like, I think it went around 60 issues plus a few specials. So it might have been closer to 70 issues or so. He writes Frank Castle as... Not necessarily a sympathetic character, but he's a fascinating character. Yeah. Like, I think... Back to the topic of its craft... Or, you know, the, the, like in terms of its craft, like the thing that I, I find really amazing about it is... Uh, he He's... Again, he's not writing a character that you're supposed to like. Like, mm-hmm. the Punisher is, is a man who's... Or the way that Annis writes him is... He he he's he's a monster. Yeah, you know he's he he's a man who's devoid of any reason to live other than to punish to like yeah. exact vengeance on uh, to kill. Yeah, to kill the, the, on the scum of the earth essentially, and he doesn't have any friends. Yeah, and it when the thing that I like is he does these moments of. I don't even know if they're inner dialogue, but when he does, like, the exposition, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, like, I think you can kind of imagine the Punisher as just this real blank slate, and uh, it, it's kind of like that quote where it says, where they say, you know, if you, when you gaze into the abyss, the ga- abyss gazes black- back. Yeah. I mean, the Punisher is essentially the abyss, and you reading this comic, you're, you're, you're getting... Uh, you're getting insight into the mind of this man who's completely hollow of anything but his sole purpose, which is just to murder evil. Yeah. You know? To kill 
the scumbags. And yeah, he's, like I said, he he doesn't even have any friends. And and in fact, in this in the stories, um, you know, people that he works with, people that are considered his his allies in a sense, like you know, if you get too close to Frank Castle, eventually you're gonna die too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like in the very first. Oh, I'm not even gonna go into that, but uh, just go into it. Okay, like in the very first arc, um, Garth Ennis pulls a character from the '80s, like one of. So when when they were writing the Punisher in the '80s, they gave they were like, we're gonna. I don't know if this was their actual thought, but essentially they were like, we're gonna humanize him by giving him a cast of people around yeah. him that you're gonna like. So he had this computer guy called Microchip, which was his tech guy who would help him out with, uh, you know. Uh, computers and stuff whenever he was going up after bad guys and he you know he needed an it guy you know (laughs) and um in this story in the very first arc this guy reaches out to the punisher and uh pulls him in through questionable means and when the punisher finds out he doesn't he doesn't look at him and go man we we had a bunch of years together and you know Mm-hmm. I'm going to turn my back on this and I'm going to let you like I'm going to let you uh I'm going to let this slide at at the end of the 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 arc he just goes look you did something wrong you you don't get second chances with me and mm-hmm. like it doesn't matter that this guy helped him in the past it doesn't matter that this guy was supposedly a longtime friend he like blows the guy's face <laughs> off yeah yeah so like uh it's again like to to your point like uh the way that ennis writes him is it's fascinating I, like almost fascinatingly ugly it's like yeah i, I love re- like hearing all the exposition where you're just kind of it, it's I, I i it's it's just powerful and dark just how much of a monster he is yeah yeah and, and i think Ennis does a really good job uh, balancing how much a monster Frank Castle is with how much a monster these people he's hunting down and killing are as yeah. well. I mean, I think uh, one of the most famous storylines of this entire run was that one story arc called The Slavers. And that was a story where the Punisher discovered a human sex trafficking ring. And... if the, sto- the story that Ennis presented in, in that arc basically presented Frank for the first time, really, in, in the whole series, where he's emotionally invested in, in what he's doing. Like, most of the time, he's he's killing these criminals, and, and, like, that act gives him satisfaction or even something close to a sense of peace. But in The Slavers, he's hunting down and destroying this human sex trafficking ring, and you actually get the sense that he hates them more than he hates the average, you know, rapist or murderer. And it, it takes you into a place where you're almost, as a reader, you're almost thinking, who is a bigger monster here, right? I mean, these human sex traffickers, the punisher for the way he's, he's not just like killing these people. He's not capping them with a bullet to the head. He's like, literally punishing them you know grabbing grabbing the 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 ringleader of of the of the trafficking ring and and like gutting him and 
tying his intestines on a tree and like really killing him in a horrible, painful way. Yeah. Or are you, as the reader, the monster? <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> right, I'm. Right. I'm just fascinated and like it's. It's almost like should I feel like in a sense I should feel dirty for for enjoying this as entertainment, right? But but uh, I remember listening to this this interview with Garth Ennis one time where he was talking about that particular story and, and he, he was saying how he did all this research into human sex trafficking and like it just put him in such a dark headspace. You know, he was disgusted at what he, he learned and not only wanted to kind of, I don't know if it was cathartic for him to, to write this story, but he basically said that he hated those people that he was reading about so much that if he, if they're, ever could be a real punisher he wished that the punisher would go after them yeah and like that's the kind of heavy emotional content that ennis infused in his entire run and and the slavers was just one of the highlight stories of it so in terms of uh the other ways that we the the other metrics that we measured this uh i think we ranked it fairly high in its ability to withstand the test of time as well. Yeah. Uh, like, the dialogue is... It's it's not overly wordy, and it's... Um, it captures just, you know, the, the bleakness of the Punisher. Yeah. Like, it, like perfectly. Yeah. yeah. Perfectly, I think. So, um... And I, the way that uh, it's illustrated, a lot of times, uh, the artist, he'll have... The artist used these uh, horizontal panels, so it's like maybe four or five tiers of horizontal panels, one horizontal panel per tier, and it, it just creates the sense of like it's very cinematic, like in, the, oh, in yeah, terms totally, of the storytelling, totally. and it, it gives you the sense of of like realness and and just this heavy sense of being so close to this mass murderer's mind, you know, yeah, the Punisher. Yeah. He like, I'm glad he's a character. And not, you know, somebody that we know. Like, yeah. This is a character that that definitely withstands the test of time. And and I think a big reason why why he's still around is because of, of runs like this. You know, yeah. he's, he's not just this silly one-note character yeah. who was, you know, fighting with Spider-Man or Daredevil and whatnot. But if anything, the fact that Ennis isolates him from the rest of the Marvel Universe, I think that's the thing that makes this run withstand the test of time. Yeah, that's you know? a good point. By putting him... So those other runs in the 80s where they were... When he was initially conceived, the idea was he was this guy whose family was murdered and he was just out for vengeance. So when they were putting... When they were doing him in the 80s, kind of like this action movie star, you mm-hmm. know, like or action movie character. Yeah. Like, if you read those now, super dated, you know, because it's corny. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. And then, again, you put him in these stories where, okay, he exists in a world where you have gods and superhumans and whatever who have a different morality or level of morality than he does, or not even level, I guess, just a different morality than he does. Mm-hmm. And... To incorporate him into the universe and try to make those two uh, conflicted moralities, like, work with one another. Like, again, it just makes him hard to read uh, once once we've gotten past that in, in mo- modern times. Once we've kind of have Once our idea of what the Punisher is has evolved. So when we, when we read Ennis' Punisher run now 
and he, we're looking at uh and, and he's isolated him from the rest of the marvel universe like what do we have we we have essentially like a real life version of what this guy would look like you know like it, yeah it's it's a it's self-contained a, yeah a self-contained intricate character study of one man's war against crime yeah yeah so that that self-containment is the thing that i think makes it withstand the test of time yeah there's there's nothing really that you look at it in this comic and you're like oh yeah that that's you know super old you know i mean maybe like some of the trappings like the technology that was around in the early 2000s okay fine they didn't have you know smartphones back then but that's you know you could say that about anything that was made back in the 2000s yeah and i think that ultimately as a as a story um with the like you were you mentioned the the dialogue and and the narrative captions that his internal monologue like that's all the writing's so good, it, it's going to be fresh for forever, you know? Yeah. It's going to be something that anyone can read at any time and be able to appreciate for what it is. And the fact that he's not part of the Marvel Universe, there's no stupid crossovers where you're yeah. like, what is this, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. he's not he's not teaming up with, with uh, Captain America to fight Galactus or whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I mean, the thing that I feel like I have to mention is, like, if we... The problem with a character like the Punisher is he does not compromise at all. Yeah. So when you put him in a story with someone like Spider-Man or Captain America, someone who has high-minded ideals, and you write him as a character who does not compromise in the pursuit of extracting vengeance... Those two ideas are at odds, mm-hmm. you know, and someone's going to come out looking weak, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, ultimately... All too often, the Punisher ended yeah, up looking weak. Exactly, exactly. He, he had been neutered for a long time before Garth yeah. Ennis came on the scene. I mean, at one point, he was literally... Marvel had a story where he was literally an angel of vengeance. Yeah. You know, that that was that was a pretty dumb story. And, yeah. uh, you know... That was their idea to try to bring him back and to make him more relevant yeah. or something yeah you know? so thankfully uh garth ennis came on board and yeah revamped him and hey now we're even gonna have i mean he's had a couple movies since this garth ennis series came out there was a tom jane movie there was that other movie that i never saw uh, uh punisher Warzone. yeah with, Warzone. i forget who the main character or who the main actor was yeah uh, i can't remember his name i, I don't yeah. think i even saw that 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 movie looked like it didn't really capture the tone of the punisher yeah but uh there now he's on the netflix, netflix. shows yeah so, I, f- I mean, um, he's definitely, and the, the Netflix Punisher definitely isn't as uh, bleak as this Punisher, if yeah. you can believe it, but I feel that this Punisher, Punisher Max by Garth Ennis, is still one of the points of reference for the John Bernthal Punisher. I mean, I yeah. obviously haven't seen his show, but from his appearance in uh, Daredevil Season 2, you, know, I, you could definitely see that they... Took inspiration from Garth Ennis' yeah. interpretation of the character. Um, I want to discuss the impact of the Punisher a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we uh, rated it a little lower in terms of its impact. Uh, I feel like the Punisher is a character that people like on a conceptual level, but I, it's hard for me to imagine, or it's hard for me to 
picture a lot of people referencing uh, the Garth Ennis Punisher specifically. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like if you talk to, you know, your average fan, there's a good chunk of them that'll reference that Punisher uh, as, as um, you know, their Punisher. Um, I, I think the people that are more impacted by him are other writers like mm-hmm. I, I i remember this interview with greg rucka where he talks about the punisher as a force of nature yeah and i he he didn't necessarily uh credit garth ennis but i i have a feeling that his idea for what the punisher should be came from reading the garth ennis run um but like i said i don't i still don't feel like your average person really knows too much about which Punisher that, you know, that they're um, in love with. Because I feel like a lot of the times when I do see the Punisher in uh, out there, it's, you know, some guy who just likes the t-shirt. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, who doesn't love the, yeah, that logo. Yeah. But, like, I, I don't think that they necessarily understand the nuance of the Anna series. Yeah. Or even recognize the writer i mean it's hard for me to say it's weird because i mean we've been constantly consistently describing frank castle in this series as this mass murderer uh but like you, you just mentioned you know he's got nuance too and it, it's hard to it's hard for us to really i think it can be pretty tough to make that connection where how can how can a mass murderer have nuance but towards the end of his run you know it's, it's not just a series of unconnected story arcs but garth ennis really builds up to something and and i don't really want to spoil what happens at the end you know it's something that is worth reading but um when by the time you you read the end of garth ennis's saga you know he he takes frank castle and and maybe you don't necessarily care for him in the sense of uh you know finding him as a sympathetic character but you gain almost this sort of understanding of a character that (laughs) <laughs> if he weren't a fictional character, you would be afraid to yeah. feel that close to him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You Yeah, you you get a better understanding of the mind of a monster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of its originality, uh, again, th- this is an example of a really well-done version of what it is, mm-hmm. you know, which is the story of one man's war on crime and what that hate does to a person yeah you know and and what his mind is like so it's it's a good comic in that regard but uh i don't think it necessarily re reinvents the wheel or and i don't i don't know if uh he was experimenting or you know doing anything that would change the genre or anything like right. that so so in that regard we i uh, i personally had to give it lower marks and again that's not a bad thing yeah uh, it's like it's still a great comic exactly I, I definitely agree um just overall it's garth ennis didn't really do anything that i felt was lacking it's just that as we get to some of the books that are higher on our list um again it was all very scientific you know (laughs) that that group that collective of academics and intellectuals we locked up they they really had to suffer for this yeah so 
it's in, it's indisputable. Relationships were put on hold. <laughs> Children grew, <laughs> and like they missed years and years of their kids' lives. <laughs> All for the Punisher. So yep. that's Garth Ennis's Punisher coming in at number twenty-three. Go seek that out if you haven't already. So what's next? Next up on our list is Omega the Unknown. It was uh, originally a comic by Steve Gerber that yep. we discussed earlier. Yep. But uh, the one we're talking about is Omega the Unknown from 2007. Yeah. Written by uh, Jonathan Lethem and drawn I, by... Wait, I thought you said his name was Jonathan Lethem. Lethem. That's correct. We just found out today that it's pronounced Lethem, despite yeah. the fact that there is only one E in it. <laughs> so, we're idiots, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, it's art by Farrell Dal- Dalrymple. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I I I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> if if uh, he or any of his family are listening to this, we apologize for mispronouncing the name. Yeah, we our specialists weren't very good at uh, phonetics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> their their sole purpose was in d- determining. What level we should place this comic on our list? When we do the top twenty-five DC comics, we'll we'll get some experts in phonics. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Omega the Unknown was a ten-issue miniseries that Marvel published back in two thousand seven. I think it finished in two thousand eight. Jonathan Lethem, he's a he's a big name. Yeah, he's a big name, big uh, literary name. Yeah, he he's not he hasn't written too many comics that I've heard of or that I know of. In fact. This might, Omega, be a, this might be his only comic, I yeah. think, because he, he's a novelist. Yeah. He, he's not just a novelist, but he won the MacArthur Genius Grant, so yeah. he's a really talented novelist, like a, a really good novelist. I, I, read, I read one of his novels, uh, The Fortress of Solitude, and, and that novel was really well put together. It was, it was dense, complex, and, and uh, he did have a good number of uh, comic book illusions in it. I mean, obviously, the title being The Fortress of Solitude, but he did... Name check Omega the Unknown multiple times. Yeah. The, the main characters in that novel were comic book readers. So he, you could tell he always had affection for for comics. Yeah. And earlier when we were talking about Howard the Duck, you mentioned Steve Gerber's influence. Well, here's an example of someone he influenced. I mean, Jonathan Lethem, or excuse me, Lethem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he's on record for stating how much he appreciated and had affection for, for Steve Gerber's work. Especially... Yeah. The original Omega the Unknown from, from the 70s. Yeah. I uh, So I want to talk about the craft of it, first mm-hmm. of all. Um, so this is a book that... I, I think I'd describe it, it, describe it as deceptively simple. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like on the face of it, it seems like... That's a fair description. Yeah, on, on, a, on your initial read-through, I think you could look at it and... It might be... The larger beats might be easy to follow, but there's a lot of subtlety and a lot of layers to this book. Like, um, the writing is super complex, just from scene to scene, yeah. all the different things that are happening, and uh, and the art is just amazing. It's gorgeous. Uh, yeah, like, I, I wish you guys could see what I was uh, seeing right now, but just the, the ability to... Uh, for Dalrymple to do storytelling from uh, panel to panel and his figures uh, it's the pencil work is just 
I, I don't even know how to like put it to words, but I, I think it's beautiful stuff. Like, yeah, it's uh, artistically in terms of just the the art, you can't really go wrong at all. This is Pharrell Dalrymple. Uh, he's he's known for doing uh, what is that? Pop Gun War. Yeah. And, like his he's got this this nice line work where everything's got clearly defined and, and that comic uh his own i've seen some of his indie comics and those are in, some of those are in black and white and this one's in full color omega the unknown being a marvel comic and his, his line work is just perfect where it's it's really detailed but it's not overly detailed not like you know a lot of mainstream artists where when he draws something he just gives it the precise amount of lines so everything's clearly defined it's got depth and the subtleties that he he uses to communicate uh, people's emotions with their body language, um, you know, even a scene like like this where Omega is like collapsed and tired, he's able to really draw him as you know this body that has a lot of weight because he can't hold himself up. Yeah. Um, but you know, a lot of people don't really know anything about Omega the Unknown, so maybe uh, we should tell him a little bit about what Omega is and what it's about. Yeah. So, so uh, Omega the Unknown, the initial, the original uh, story by Gerber was a story of an alien that comes to Earth and he, for, he basically just fights crime, but uh, the way that... And I, robots. And robots. <laughs> and But the thing that in, that I found interesting in its description was that Gerber wanted to write a story about a kid that wasn't a kid sidekick. Yeah. So he was telling these two narratives where the kid was involved and he had his own problems. And running parallel to his story was the story of this alien uh, who was who came from space mm-hmm. to fight robots and yeah. crime. You know? So it's, it's, it's... He was a very mysterious sort of superhero figure. Yeah. So it's definitely not Batman and Robin, you yeah, know. Not it, at all. It's, it's not about oh they develop a relationship and like <laughs> he looks up to him and you know yeah he learns what the meaning of heroism is. Yep. It, uh, he wanted to Gerber initially wanted to do a story about yeah just this kid dealing with you know super super related things while dealing with his life in this gritty neighborhood mm-hmm. and in. Jonathan Lethem's version, Jonathan Lethem and Pharrell Dalrymple's version, basically takes the the same concept where this the story begins with Omega. He's he's basically this this mute superhero. He doesn't talk. He's very mysterious. He's from another world. Uh, he's got a cape and super strength, and he's beating up robots. And you see his story uh, unfold separately from. The main character, who who's this teenager, this this teenager, uh, he's almost got. I want to say, Lethem writes him as this guy who's maybe borderline uh, Aspergers or something. Like he's there's something about him that's not quite. He's not a normal he's teenager. Off. Yeah, he's he's off. he's off a little bit. There we go. He's off a little bit, and basically one day this teen goes out with his parents for for a drive, and his parents get into a horrible car crash, and he's the only survivor. But as a result of the crash, he he learns that his parents are robots. Yeah. 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 And he ends up going to the hospital, recovering, basically trying to make sense of 
what happened? You know, how can his parents be robots? And then Omega somehow crashes into his life and and this kid ends up having these powers where he shoots uh, energy blasts from his hands, but when he does it, his palms develop the uh, Omega, Omega symbol. symbol. Yeah. Char- the Greek character Omega. And he and, and Omega the Unknown end up uh, working together and the story turns out to be them dealing with some they interact with a lot of bizarre things. I mean, it, it it's almost uh, I don't know if absurdist is the right thing to to describe it with, but they fight a guy who's basically a gigantic hand on top of two <laughs> legs. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's that's fairly absurd. Yeah, <laughs> and the story itself ends up being a meditation on, I guess, growing up and and finding your place in this world and what is what is friendship and it's it's actually very touching, very affecting, and you wouldn't necessarily as- expect that kind of story from something that's so bizarre or, or different. Yeah. Like, I, I do feel... In, in, in uh, pulling this book off the shelf uh, for the purposes of our review, I, I, I went online and uh, checked out other people's reviews mm-hmm. for their analyses of the book, and... I do think that a lot of people... For a lot of people, it's... They were just able to see what the what the surface of the story was. Yeah. And they kind of glossed over or didn't notice more of the intricacies and subtleties of the book. There's a lot of subtext, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So, um, it, it's... And I'll, and I'll admit that I think that this book is over my head and it's something that requires multiple reads in order for me to fully process mm-hmm. uh, what it is and what it's about. Certainly. But, uh, the again, the craft of it is excellent. Just the the artwork is, is just so good and, um, and Jonathan Lethem's writing is just something that you could process for yeah. days and uh, it, it it rewards multiple readings it's there's some poetic language i think that yeah, he uses and yeah. and uh i mean again we're talking about a guy who won the macarthur genius grant like he's obviously a really talented writer um people just don't know about this comic man yeah and i think in our criteria as, as we were grading these comics that was one of the things that might have hurt it a bit because I felt like I couldn't really honestly say that it left a big impact because people just don't know about this comic and it's such a great comic but they just don't know about it even like it only came out 10 years ago but people it's sort of lost to time like no one really references it anymore I think the hardcover is out of print it's like how are people going to find this and I really don't get it because again it's it's Jonathan Lethem you know he's he's somebody that Whose work should always be in print. I mean, his no- yeah. do his novels go out of print, <laughs> right? It's like, come on, why can't Marvel just do this thing yeah. and, and like put out another nice hardback edition of yeah. this book? Um, we don't, or I don't toss this term around very often, but this is definitely something that I would consider a literary comic. <laughs> you tossed that term around yeah the, the first time and maybe not the last but we'll see if we can find more literary comics so how would you explain or describe what makes this a literary comic or 
or maybe just explain what is a literary comic see that's that's the thing we've we've had this conversation on multiple occasions where we tried to define what a literary comic is because on the face of it all comics are literary you can't see my air quotes <laughs> right because they're works of literature but you know uh, it's it's just it, it's a term that is so up for so subjective i guess you know it's it's so hard to define it's almost like a thing where you're like i don't know how to define it but i know it when i see it exactly exactly <laughs> right so uh in discussing that we were i guess we were saying that it has to use literary uh, devices. devices, and uh, again, go into what you're like. I, mean, what I, the... I, I would think that if I were to describe what makes a literary comic a literary comic, um, I would just say that it's a comic that, as we just said, employs literary <laughs> devices. But yeah. but not only that, but employs them. In a sophisticated manner. Yeah. And by that, I would just say... I mean, it, it, we're talking about art criticism basically here, right? So, in a way, that's kind of subjective. But I would say that that if we're looking at how a comic uses literary devices, whether it's a device as simple as, you know, a narrative caption or a flashback or allegory or metaphor or whatever, right... No, there, just, there, yeah. there, are, there are comics out there that use those things, but I wouldn't necessarily look at them and think, yeah. oh, that's a literary comic because, you know, it's got a flashback or whatever. Yeah. But something like Omega the Unknown, where in a way it's almost like Lethem and Dalrymple are forcing the reader to try and keep up because they're they're challenging. Yeah. Your it has literary aspirations. Yeah, you know? like he's. It's not necessarily something that you'll read once and fully grasp right away yeah. because it's so simple. But it's something you read and you'll you'll get the gist of it. But if you read it again, you'll get even more out of it. Yeah. And as they employ their literary devices in in their work, um, it, it those things kind of have this cumulative effect where they add up and. Maybe it's you, yeah, it's revelatory. Yeah, and you don't yeah. necessarily consciously think and be like, "Oh yeah, I'm identifying," you know, six uses of that device here. Yeah, six uses of uses of it there. But it's just this cumulative effect where your mind is subconsciously constantly processing yeah. all these different elements of the storytelling. Yeah, that you just kind of get to this place where you're like. Yeah, that wasn't a straightforward story, you know? Like, yeah. if, if we're looking at a lot of genre fiction, whether it's detective novels or superhero comics, a lot of times the tropes that are inherent in those works, you already your mind already has an understanding of how those stories are told and how they work, and you just kind of read through them. The plot's all superficial, all surface level. But when you read something like Omega the Unknown or a literary work... There's always something bubbling under the surface. It's a book that requires processing. Yeah. Like, there's no way around it. And I think that's... It's it's what contributes so much to the craft of it. You yeah. Know? For him as a writer to make something that requires you to actually think about it, mm -hmm. I, I guess that's what makes it literary, you mm -hmm. know? Or, for, or at least for me. I mean... Compared to, like, Pulp Fiction or something, right? Yeah. Like, 
again, what you were saying about reading it and just kind of going through the motions of reading it and just processing it on a surface level mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, okay, uh, this is a detective story. He, he goes and he finds clues and then he uh, looks at those clues and then he processes them and then they all come together and he solves the crime and he saves the people. And that's kind of the story right there. Mm-hmm. But with Omega the Unknown, um, there is that surface story of, oh, this is about a kid and an alien and they're fighting, uh, you know, there's some sort of robot invasion that they're fighting and yeah. there's that. But it requires you to, like, really go through it with a fine-tooth comb to see what each individual panel is trying to say about the work as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, in addition to craft... Uh, I would say that it's originality, although it was, you know, on the surface again, it's a story about a kid and a, you know, a kid with superpowers and an alien who fights robots. And not only that, I mean, it's based on an existing concept. Yeah. I mean, do you think that that, uh, did you uh, detract from uh, the originality for that or? You know, I didn't really ding it too much for that. I mean, obviously there is some it's level creative where, in other ways yeah yeah i mean he took something that was that already existed and i wouldn't even say he remixed it or modernized it i would say he he took it respected what came before but he really they really made it their own you know yeah, they told yeah. the, they told their own story they had something to say and it wasn't necessarily what steve gerber and his uh his uh fellow creators had to say when they did their original take but but uh, the Lethem and Dalrymple version, it yeah, I mean, just the just because it's it takes familiar concepts doesn't I doesn't hurt its yeah. originality. Yeah, uh, I yeah, I mean, it's yeah, I, I go back to what I said. It, it's it's creative in other ways, you know. Yeah, he, his storytelling is what is is where he finds his unique voice and uh, and the and, and just the the. The panel-to-panel, uh, you know, his narrative, his dialogue, all those things are are where the creativity and the originality come from, in my view. Yeah. So, uh, go ahead. Oh, did you have anything more to say about Omega? Uh, yeah, uh, so just the last two points. Uh, in terms of its impact... We it's hard for us to say yeah. that there really is any impact because it nobody comic, knows about it. Yeah, it's a comic that came and went, and I think at the time that it came out, there was a lot of hype a lot about it because Jonathan Lethem was behind it, mm-hmm. so there was publicity for that. But yeah, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but I also think that the fact that it was so different that the average comic book, the average superhero reader, probably might have looked at the first issue and said, "This art's weird," you know, it's yeah. not. It's not like your typical superhero art. The story isn't your typical yeah. superhero story. And maybe, maybe they just thought it wasn't for them. Yeah. But that's a that's a big that's a big shame, man. Yeah, uh, like I can see it kind of getting it from both ends. Like, although he's kind of a writer's writer, and you know, lauded by academics and literary types, mm-hmm. I could see that they would look at that and just be like, "Oh, it's a comic." And then on the other end, again, it's like your average comic fan would look at that and just yeah. be like, I don't understand this. Yep. And 
ultimately you, you, you we get what we get, which is it's a great book, but just nobody doesn't knows get about attention. It. Yeah. yeah, people have forgotten about it. And people who do know his name probably didn't want to really give it a fair chance because it was a comic. Yeah. Um, in terms of its ability to withstand the test of time, I think, I think Jonathan Lethem, Lethem has uh, has a good ear for dialogue, and it, it's it's literary roots show. Yeah, you know. So yeah. I, I do think it's it's something that I won't go back to it in ten years and just be like, this is so dated. What is yeah. this? You know, yeah. it's it's something that's gonna reward again reward multiple readings and i'm just going to keep going back to it and i'll be able to glean new insights as i read it Mm -hmm. absolutely i agree entirely um this is a comic that it's i think it's only gonna get better with time yeah as as we mature and yeah better readers yeah yeah i mean that's assuming that we can still get smarter uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) but assuming that's the case I hope that's the case. <laughs> There's uh, also the possibility that we're gonna get dumber. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So uh, that's Omega the Unknown, folks. Coming in at number twenty-two. If you don't have this, cop this. It was Wait. only ten issues long. You might still. Was it twenty-three? Yeah. Is that right? No, we had it at twenty-two. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm yeah, looking at. We had it at twenty-two. Okay. So. Uh, if you don't have it, cop it. It was only 10 issues long. You probably could be able to track down the issues in a quarter bin or back issue bin. And uh, if you find the hardcover, I mean, totally buy it. It's substantial. It's, it's a great, great piece of work. So the last book that we'll talk about today, coming in at number 21, is The Ultimates by Mark Miller and Brian Hitch. Yep. And uh, again, we're lumping in two runs here, uh, The Ultimates 1 and The Ultimates 2. And again, I don't think that's a cheat because it's the exact same creative team working on on both books. Yeah, it's so. Um, let's start by discussing the craft of this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I I would say that it's a really well done action movie in a comic book. Definitely. Basically. Uh, Brian Hitch's artwork is very realistic. His his ability to capture, you know, people's faces is really well done, as well as uh, scenery. Like, I love... The like, amount of building. detail. Yeah, the amount of detail. Exactly. Right? Um, and his panel-to-panel storytelling is... It's cinematic. Yeah. You know? Uh, I think... It's it's the closest thing that I can think of to a movie as a comic book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cinematic. That's that's how you, you would describe these these series. Yeah. Um I mean obviously Mark Miller and Brian Hitch are well known for working on The Authority uh at separate times. Yeah. But both of them kind of made their name on The Authority, right? And when you think of Brian Hitch and what he did with Warren Ellis on that original run of The Authority. That that's one of the most influential superhero comics of our lifetimes. Yeah. The Authority by Ellis and Hitch. It, and a big part of what made that so influential was 
the cinematic quality of of the storytelling and of that's, Hitch's art. Yeah, that's yeah. where we have the term because of the authority and Brian Hitch. We have and Warren Ellis. We have the term widescreen comics. Yeah, right. He was able to present panels in in a way where he might have not used a whole bunch of like smaller panels to convey information, but he, he used a lot of bigger panels to convey like all the the minimum amount of information that you needed to understand what was yeah. going on and when he when it came to the choreography of action sequences the way that hitch drew them everybody like you said he's got this great sense of anatomy right and and i would say kind of like uh steve epting whom we mentioned when we talked about avenger new avengers brian hitch has this quality of superheroic realism where everybody's got these idealized bodies and figures and forms and he's able to convey the sense of power and and impact and but they're not exaggerated speed. yeah they're not you know? exaggerated we're not in looking way. at eric larson comics here yeah we're not looking at uh you know michael turner or something <laughs> or j scott campbell man like, did you just put eric larson in the same <laughs> breath as j scott just, campbell and michael turner i'm just trying to pick uh exaggerated <laughs> artists i have much affection for eric larson and significantly less for michael turner <laughs> Uh, the thing that I wanted to add was, so Brian Hitch's art style uh, perfectly captures cinematic uh, storytelling, but I think Mark Millar his, or Miller, his, <laughs> his writing perfectly complements it. I mean, this this work perfectly complements one another. They both bring each other's strengths to it because mm -hmm. Mark Miller, if you don't know who he is, he. He's behind his own Miller World Productions, which has put out a bunch of movies. And he has this great ear for dialogue and, like, this ability to capture cinematic uh, storytelling, essentially. Like, yeah. you know, uh, like, he knows how to do big beats well. And he knows how to build up uh, to, to, to heighten the drama and just... So that when the payoff does come, it's just going to be... It, it's so well worth it, you know? Mm -hmm. He knows how to just constantly escalate it and just... It, he, he's a script writer who, who basically made a, a comic book that that's a movie in a, in a book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they had a, just adapted The Ultimates 1 and made that the Avengers movie, it would have been pretty much perfect. Yeah. Um, and maybe we should talk a little bit about what... The Ultimates is about what the concept of it is. So the the Ultimates came out uh, in the early 2000s. Um, it's part of Marvel's Ultimate Comics line, the, the Ultimate Universe, which was, you know, basically when they felt that in order to attract a newer or younger audience of readers, they created a new line of comics that was supposed to put. Uh, Marvel characters that we all knew and love in modern settings. Right. So that we, you know, uh, they were dealing with the threats that we dealt with today. Or or they were dealing with um, problems in the context that we understood today. Right. So, you know, uh, supervillains weren't just supervillains anymore. They were super terrorists. Um, mm -hmm. Or they were peoples of mass destruction. Because at the time, weapons of mass destruction were kind of the thing... Yeah. that uh, your average person was hearing all over the news. Right, right. So uh, it was giving it its own language that updated it for readers at the time. 
Yeah, and not only that, but they started the stories from ground zero, basically. I mean, the first Ultimate Universe comic was... Uh, well, the first two were Spider-Man and, and the X-Men. And basically, it's telling their, their origins, starting from their origin stories. So, there wasn't really a whole bunch of continuity and, and history to bog these characters down. And, and that's part of why Marvel wanted to, to do that, was because, you know, at the time, you had in their... All their other comics had, you know... 40-something years of history behind yeah. them. And if they wanted to It's do hard something to new, jump in as a new reader and be like, wait, so it turns out this guy was his father, but yeah. then it turns yeah. out he's not his father and it's his clone. Yeah. And then he married this person, but now, like, they're not married and he's going out with this... You know, I mean, like, imagine... It's convoluted. It is, it is. Imagine watching, like, a teenage soap opera... And, like, trying to follow their lives yeah. from beginning to, you know, now. It's just, it's too much sometimes. Yeah, but. exactly. So, the Ultimates came out of that movement. And these are the Ultimate Avengers, basically. Yeah. You've got Captain America, Iron Man, Thor. Uh, the Wasp. The Wasp. Giant Man. Hank Pym. Hawkeye and Black, Black Widow. Widow. And it's, it's the story of, of... Ultimates 1 is the story of how they come together, their origin story. And uh, what are some of your thoughts on the first volume of the Ultimates, Albert? It, uh... I've got a lot of affection for this book, you know? It's, it's just such a great adventure story. I mean, it's... It's the Avengers... It's the Avengers, and yet it's not the Avengers, uh, in the sense that Mark Miller kind of has a devious sense of humor. Yeah. And he, he, he likes making them... I guess part of making things real requires him making them a little meaner. Yeah. Than, I remember than the, first time I, the first time I ever read The Ultimates, I was yeah. like, why is everybody a jerk? Yeah. Everybody's yeah. such a jerk to each other. Even Captain America, who's like, you know, he's a walking flag... Once, once they beat the Hulk and the Hulk has shrunken down back to Bruce Banner, he kicks him in the face. Yeah. He's he's like Captain America is standing over him and he's like, man, uh, Bruce Banner is all like, oh, I'm really sorry, guys. And Captain America, you would think that he'd be gracious about it, but he looks at him and he goes, man, you got to get that gash on your face checked out. <laughs> and he's just on his uh, uh bruce banner is on his hands and knees and he's like what gash and then captain america kicks him in the face <laughs> <laughs> so that but but you know what um i still have a lot of affection because there are just so many good like big moments in this book and uh again it's mark miller's gift is in his ability to like set the pieces up so that when you get to this moment, the satisfaction is just so great. Yeah. It's it's just this action movie where, like, all these things are going on. And, you know, you you have to have an all-is-lost moment where the bad guys, yep. like, have, uh, have it over the good guys for a split second. So that you know that the threat is real. And so yeah. that you believe that the threat is real. But then when the good guys finally do come back, 
Like it's satisfying. It's super satisfying, you know. This is like a, a smart man's action movie or a totally. thinking man's action movie. Totally, you know. And it comes with one-liners. Yeah. You know, Captain America's fighting this alien, and uh, he's like just beating the crap out of him, <laughs> and. Uh, the guy, the, the aliens, are like telling him that he should surrender now because you know, like the the odds are against him. And Captain America just points at the A in his forehead and he goes, "What do you think this letter on my head stands for? France? <laughs> <laughs> one of the greatest moments in comic book history. That's definitely one of the greatest one-liners we've ever experienced in comics. This, yeah, this was a great pair of uh, action comics and and. I like how in the first volume they did a good job slowly building things up where I think the temptation would have been to, you know, you have the first issue and the first issue should be like the slam bang spectacle. Yeah, yeah. But they save the spectacle. They, they build up to the spectacle. Yeah. It's like you were saying, he, he's able, both of them are able to kind of build things up and eventually, you know, you have the team forming in the first uh, story arc. The team forms and much like the original Avengers back in... Uh, the sixties, this team ends up fighting the Hulk as well, yeah. and I think the way that they did it, you know, it, it worked for, you know, modern times or at least you know the early two thousands that that whole era. Um, the action was heavy hitting, and that in alien invasion in the second story arc gets pretty intense. And what I one of the things that I liked about um, the work overall is not just uh, the action, but also a lot of the the different scenes in between the uh, set pieces, where you know there's that one scene where the team is talking about, hey, who's gonna play us when they do a movie version of us, right? Yeah. And you know this is where Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury comes into play because yeah. Nick Fury is such a big part of this this comic, and when they when Brian Hitch designed him, he designed him to intentionally look like Samuel L. Jackson. And, and somehow that ended up happening. That, we got Samuel L. Yeah. Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, and I don't know if this is necessarily uh, a craft thing, but uh, it's something that I do really appreciate about this book is mm-hmm. at the time when it was being uh, released issue by issue, there were these long delays. Yeah. But, um, but I, I don't know if they insisted on it or what, but Mark Miller and Brian Hitch... Uh, stuck it out and they ended up putting out they there were no guest artists and they mm-hmm. they stayed together and they were able to complete their story cohesively yeah and because of that now that we have these two uh completed works you can read them as a whole and like just fully appreciate it in all its glory yeah as a consistent and just magnificent piece of work yeah yeah i definitely appreciate that too i mean with the with all this hindsight behind us, you know, at, obviously at the time people were like, "Man, why can't it just come out?" Yeah, you know, people are getting impatient. But now that we've all had these it, years later, that patience paid off. Yeah, I mean, for us at yeah. least. I mean, I don't know if people who were upset back then ended up just quitting on the comic altogether because they couldn't wait. Yeah, but now we have these completed works, and it feels good to to open it up, and you know, you've got these twenty six issues and you don't have to worry about a fill-in artist yeah because sometimes sometimes you get a fill-in artist that's good sometimes you get one that's bad but it's it's not really about the quality it's uh, just 
about the reading experience. Yeah. Because when you go and you're reading it and all of a sudden there's this abrupt shift in art style or storytelling style, like, you notice it. Yeah, and if especially when it's not intentional, right? Or yeah. if the only intention is so they can pump out a comic and release it by a certain deadline. But, it, I mean, there are times when they might creators might have you know, a specific reason to, to have a guest artist, that's fine, but there wouldn't have been any reason to go with the guest artist for the Ultimates 1 or 2. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to ask was, uh, in the original Avengers, uh, like, the original Avengers, right? Yeah. Like, the formation of the team was them basically taking on the Hulk because Loki tricks the Hulk. Yeah. And uh, do you know how many issues that took for that story? That was one issue. That was one issue. So the thing that uh again that i just want to point out is uh again this is mark miller doing the modern iteration of that story yeah and he does that same story but over six issues yeah they eventually end up fighting the hulk anyways yeah because that's kind of a keystone moment for the avengers you don't get the fight until the end of the story exactly you get a lot of story like the first few issues are really just about Building up the team, introducing the characters, introducing yeah. the world that they inhabit. And explaining their dynamics so that yeah. you understand how they get along with each other and how they relate to the world. And when they finally get into this fight with the Hulk, you already have a good sense of... Who the, they are. Yeah, and not only that, but the potential unlocked energy that they're capable of unleashing, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of, like, build-up in that sense where you know that these characters are capable of being these massively destructive forces. Yeah. But... Until you actually see it, it's like all kind of theoretical on the page. You're reading about these characters. Yeah. You, you you have an understanding of what they're able to do. But when you finally see them unleash the full force of their superhuman powers, you're just like, wow, these it's, guys ain't no joke. It's a god fight in, this, in the middle of a city. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the art's just so delicious, man. Yeah. The, the detail in, in the buildings and, and the backgrounds, it's, it's an incredible amount of detail. And... When you look at that stuff, it's like, oh, I can understand why Brian Hitch took so long to draw it. You yeah, know, I, I don't begrudge him for that, man. Like, yeah, just take your time and, and do a great job yeah. because this this holds up. Yeah, this work, this artwork is so intricate. It's it's perfect, man. Like yeah. you can't really find any fault with this if you're looking for just a good, smart, straightforward superhero action comic. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, so uh, in terms of the other metrics, um, it's what? When did this come out? Around the 2000s? First issue of Ultimates, I believe, came out in 2002, I want to say. Okay, so this came out in 2002. So uh, It took him a while to complete it, though. It did. It did. <laughs> but even so, we're it's still in our rearview mirror in yeah. just in terms of time. And I'd still... I'd, I still stand by it. It's uh, it it's yeah. withstood the test of time, and uh, it's something that even if I read it today, I I don't I don't think that I would stop and be like, what? Huh? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, I'm, I it's it's still again. Mark Miller has this like excellent ability to capture like dialogue and just how people converse yeah you know it's, it's not overly wordy it doesn't get yeah. bogged down with a bunch of unnecessary text yeah it's it's it, it's a, a thinking man's uh action comic yeah yeah it's, it's it's an action comic where the plot doesn't happen because 
characters act silly or do stupid stuff. Yeah, you don't have to bend over backwards in order for the logic logic of the comic to make any sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, in terms of its impact, this was a comic that that I think you could honestly draw a direct line to the mm-hmm. Avengers movies. Yes. Yeah. Like the Avengers movie isn't isn't scene for scene uh, a copy of this comic but you can tell that there are a lot of moments that uh inspired that were inspired by this comic and uh if not actual moments there's a lot of stylistic things that were inspired this comic yeah yeah the the influence that this comic had uh well first of all superhero comics in general it had a i'd say it had a pretty big impact if you look at some of the character designs that brian hitch came up with um, especially with uh, like Hawkeye, for example. Yeah. You know that that design he did for Hawkeye. That's what we have today. And, uh, yeah. More or less. And a lot of a lot of uh, other superhero artists ended up kind of aping that design aesthetic. You know. Yeah. The, the more leather, practical. More practical. Less. Less flashy, I guess, or less. Yeah. Superhero-y. Yeah. So. If you. It's uh, more utilitarian. Uh, like there I, you go. I remember uh, at the time uh, DC. They they gave uh you know Arsenal you know the the former Speedy they gave yeah. him a redesign and they kind of made him look sort of similar to Hawkeye yeah. you know and yeah. that that's another guy who used to shoot a lot of bow and arrows yeah it's like you know that clearly it it made a big impact yeah. in uh in superhero comics but like you said I think the bigger impact this comic had was in was in pop culture in general yeah. Uh, Specifically with the movies, looking at uh, this hardcover you have of Ultimates One, uh, Joss Whedon he wrote the introduction to it. You know yeah. he he was obviously influenced by by it, and you can't tell me that when he was filming the Avengers he wasn't thinking about the Ultimates. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, yeah, its ability to withstand the test of time was high, and we felt like its impact was uh, undeniable. Mm-hmm. Um, the only reason that I would say that we, uh, probably didn't rank it higher is that at the end of the day, it's not the most original piece of work. It's another example of just a, a comic that's doing the best version of what it's doing. It's, yeah. It's the yeah. best version of a superhero action comic book. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know? Exactly. So, um, Yeah. I don't. I don't know if there's necessarily anything uh, super deep or or a mess, a meaningful message that they were trying to impart upon us, other than entertainment and yeah. you know just have fun and enjoy this. Yeah. And in all in that regard, they succeeded. You know, um, I mean, there's definitely going to be some things in it that that uh, might come off as a bit dated. Like I remember in the, in that first story. There's uh, references to like Freddie Prince Jr. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and he's uh, he's not really around anymore. Yeah, I, I got I got love for him though yeah, because yeah. because he played James Vega in Mass Effect. Yeah, and he also played the Iron Bull he in was, Dragon Age Inquisition. He'll always have that. So yeah, <laughs> can't take that away from. Yeah, him. exactly. But yeah. you know, there's references to Freddie Prince Jr. Uh, there's references but, to that one girl from American Pie. Yeah, uh, well, uh, Shannon Elizabeth. Shannon Elizabeth. I, I think they actually draw her into the yeah, comic. She, yeah. Uh, there, there's a scene where where the Ultimates are at a at a gala, and they meet uh, President George W. Bush. Yeah, they, he was actually drawn into the comic. Yeah, too. yeah. 
and it, it's a, it's a realistic drawing but I, yeah. I don't know maybe those are things that you know years from now you'll look at that and be like oh that was a product of its time i mean certainly the stuff with freddie prince jr yeah, it's like the pop culture stuff yeah the pop definitely. culture stuff i mean drawing the president that that's that's fine you know yeah. i don't i don't have any issue with that but the there's there's pop culture references that mark miller often uses in his work and and uh your mileage may vary with that to me yeah. it's not really a big deal and like i said i got affection for freddie prince jr yeah. <laughs> Yeah, even that scene you were talking about earlier where, like, they were talking about who was going to play them in the movies. Yeah. And, like, Captain America, they were talking about Captain America, and they were like, who else but Brad Pitt? Yeah. Like, a thousand years from now, no one's going to know who Brad Pitt is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just going to be like, uh. <laughs> I guess, you know, it'd be like if uh, there was a comic written back then, uh, you know, X amount of years ago, and they were like, why this guy looks like Charlie Chaplin, <laughs> or, you know? Like you know who should play Captain America? Bing Crosby. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not actually sure what Bing Crosby looks like. Yeah. I mean, I know who. I, I know his name. I don't yeah. know what he looks like. Uh, maybe like maybe people who are uh, more versed or uh, or larger consumers of pop culture, even going back then, would be like, oh yeah, I know who Frank Sinatra is. Yeah. Or whatever, but. Your average person would just kind of tilt their head and be like, huh? <laughs> Some dead guy. Yeah. I guess I guess it must have been like a president or something. Or... <laughs> president Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, man. All right. There is one more scene I wanted to discuss real briefly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Ultimates 2. There's this scene where Captain America... It's a quiet moment where... He, he meets Bucky, right? And and in this universe, Bucky never died. He never became the Winter Soldier. None of that. He's just... He was a World War II veteran who, by this point in time, is just a really old senior citizen. He's aged. He's aged, while Captain America, you know, he, he had been trapped in the ice, and now he's still in his prime, but his mind is still the man of somebody who's who fought in World War II. And he, he ends up connecting with with his old friend Bucky and Bucky's still his best friend and there's that scene in in the second volume of the Ultimates where they're just kind of like having a heart-to-heart conversation about everything that's been going on in their lives and at the end of it you know Cap's basically like I just feel so alone I'm a man out of time and there's I don't belong here right like I've like I'm a man who's who was removed from the period where I should have lived my prime and now I'm in this world that's all different unfamiliar unfamiliar and hitch just draws the scene where where bucky you know he's a smaller older man now and he doesn't know what to say but he just gives cap a hug and and that was a scene where i was affected by it and it was like you know there miller and hitch were really good at communicating you know simple things like that i mean yeah there's there's a lot of scenes where the characters, including Captain America, come off as as jerks. They're arrogant, conceited. Uh, but a scene like that shows you, you know, there is a little bit of depth to these characters as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're 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 human. You know, they're not just about spouting one-liners as they punch you in the face. Exactly. Yeah. And and who's to say that if if these if people like this really existed, you know, they I'm sure they wouldn't all be pleasant people to hang around with. That's true. And that's true. And. Uh, they're not necessarily no one's that perfect. Yeah, exactly. They're the, the ultimates that, as written by Miller and Hitch, um, they're not the idealized versions of these characters necessarily, but they're 
really exciting versions of these characters <laughs> is what I would stand by. So, yeah, definitely worth reading. All right. That is our list. Uh, 25 through 21. Yep. Right That's there. That's the five that we, we talked about on this episode. So, thanks for tuning in to Between the Gutters. Yep. And we will check you next time. Where we go over our, the, ne- the list of the next five on our list of top 25 Marvels of all time. All right? All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Peace out. Peace out.